In this episode of Jim Questions Everything, we dive headlong into the work of D&I, or Diversity and Inclusion, which is shorthand for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. We talk with Torin Ellis, an expert in this work who not only helps us understand what it's about, but why it's important. The ROI of DNI is greater humanity. But more than a surface level review of DNI goals, we look at the many dynamics at play in organizations around the world, including the dynamics of power and how they absolutely have to change. In our pursuit of shifting the narrative around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, we have to challenge the power dynamic. We have to break the cycle of always reverting to patriarchy or centering whiteness in our solution. And in talking about the many facets of DNI, we hear about the basic tenets that guide Torrin's work. Core principles for me around this are empathy, proximity, and transparency. This is a pull no punches episode where Torrin makes it clear that organizations underwriting racism and intolerance have no place in our economy. I wanna see racist organizations go out of business, period. Along the way, I'm poked and I'm prodded and I'm pushed by Torin to reflect on my own views. And it's not always easy. Here's the honest truth. I feel like a deer in headlights. No, it's not easy, but that's exactly what makes this conversation so special. With that, here's Jim Questions Everything with Torin Ellis. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Jim Questions Everything. I'm really excited about my guest today, a man named Torin Ellis. And he's not just a man, he's a brand. And he's built that brand on a body of work that we're gonna learn a lot about today, specifically centered around DNI. But I suspect we're gonna wander into some uncharted territory. At least I hope we do. Torin, thanks so much for joining me today. And thank you for trusting my voice. I know that you are building an audience building a a platform with your podcast. And, you know, for a lot of individuals, they say that there are too many podcasts, there are too many access points for, for people, but I don't feel like they're enough. And so I absolutely wish you the best as you continue to push forward uh, in this pursuit of building your audience and more importantly, building your connectedness to humanity by having these very rich and vibrant conversations. I appreciate you saying that. Thanks for the support. And also thanks for you know, uh, building that connection, the idea of connectedness, that you're right, that, that's what I'm after. Uh, in our prep call last week, you asked me, who's your audience, Jim? I, I didn't have a good answer. I said, my audience is me. Yeah. Because I don't know yet, but I know yeah. that these are the conversations I want to have and I want to listen to. So for all the podcasts that are out there, I think maybe in some ways I'm learning a lot, but still not hearing the conversations that I hope to hear. So today's one of them for sure. Uh, Tell me about your work. I want to start there so, so we can get a baseline for the kind of work that you do. And then I'm going to want to hear how you came into it. But uh, your focus is on D&I. Talk about yeah. your work, please. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And for those that are critical, uh, the longer acronym is D-E-I-B. Uh, I don't want you or anyone to think that Jim and I don't necessarily know what space we're in. Uh, so we say D&I for short, D-E-I-B. And I'm certain that you know, there's a good possibility by the time that this uh, episode is published, it'll probably have another 
letter on the back side of that. But I, I tend to show show up differently in the uh, the DEIB space um, than other consultants. Uh, and I don't say that to impress you, Jim, or your listeners, but to impress upon you uh, that I am very serious about how I show up and it being different. And so what that looks like is a part of my day, I'm consulting with organizations, large brands, helping them to optimize their DEIB strategy, really building that strategy, strengthening that strategy, if you will, challenging that strategy. So I get inside of organizations with a very, very earnest effort towards optimization. I speak all around the world, both publicly as well as privately. So I've done some of the most, uh, some of the largest conferences in the HR talent acquisition space. I've worked with some of the largest organizations behind the scenes, talking with leadership, curating speaker series for them, various topics related to the DNI spectrum. Uh, and then last but not least, I have a bit of a media persona. And so for five years, I was on Sirius XM that ended January of this year, uh, but I also am the uh, co-pod or co-host of Crazy and the King with my beautiful pod partner, Miss Julie Sowash. And we purposefully titled it Crazy and the King because Julie has a hidden disability. We, we wanted to, to show people that you can function and be an intricate part of this journey, even with your disability. And then of course, King, because a lot of people referred to me as one of the Kings of diversity, but I think it came because I refer to my sons as Kings. I refer to young black men as Kings, as warriors, as soldiers. And, you know, a lot of people hear me when I speak and when I say that, and so they just, you know, kind of attached King to my name. So that's who I am. And that's how I show up. Well, you showed up strong here, and I appreciate that I'm in the room with royalty. It matters. I want to acknowledge something right off, which is I'm not sure everyone in our audience, for as much as you just helped me unpack DNI versus DEI or DEIB, we didn't actually give the long form definition of those things. So I want to do that for our audience just in case we need to really set that baseline. And then yeah. I want to be honest. I, I had a specific question in my notes about why you're choosing to uh, cite this work as DNI versus DEI. Now you've told me, hey, it's just more of an abbreviated form. But here's my confession. I was, I don't know what the B is. I'm, I'm, I'm going to not try and not be embarrassed about that because this yeah. is the whole point of being here is to learn. So tell me the long form definition of DEIB. Yeah, absolutely. Diversity is the D. Equity is the E, I'm gonna come back to the equity in a moment. Inclusion is the I, B is for belonging. So diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, D-E-I-B. People struggle with the equity piece because they kind of uh, confuse it with e, uh, equality and equality and equity are absolutely different. And just to give you an example so that you understand it, equal is you and I both being given uh, a pair of size eight women shoes to wear. That's equal. Jim's got a size eight. Torn has a size eight. But how we perform, whether or not we are able to navigate the journey of walking in those shoes may look a little bit different. Your foot is different. Mine is a size 12 male. So can I really perform and operate equitably 
in a woman's size eight shoe. And so that's the difference between equality and equity. It's really around making sure that the resources are there to support the individual in their pursuit, their journey, their ascension, the challenges that they are facing. The belonging piece is also something that people struggle with because we have inclusion while you and I are both sitting in the same cafeteria at a lunchtime, a break, or whatever the case may be, I may not feel like I belong. You look across the room, there are some people in the cafeteria that are sitting by themselves. Uh, they're not necessarily participating in the conversation. They're not in communication with other peers, other colleagues. And so that belonging piece is something important. Now, that may be by design. The person may be on a personal phone call. They may be going through a you know, a preparation routine for a big presentation that they have. So certainly it's not always a negative thing that the person is off to their lonesome, but from a belonging standpoint, it's our responsibility to make sure that we are making sure that people feel like they belong in the settings, on the business units, in the teams, in the departments where they are. Yeah, I really appreciate that. First off, so that everyone understands the long form definition of DEI, DEIB. I've, I've heard people talk through the equity versus equality piece. And for those of you listening, if you haven't spent time, uh, there's actually some great imagery out there. There's a great metaphor, including the one that you just shared, Torin. I really appreciate that because it also harkens this idea of walk a mile in someone's shoes before sure. you pass judgment. So I, I think that's a, a beautifully said construct for the equity versus equality piece. But can we spend a little bit more time on the belonging? Because but it just somehow resonates so well because in my work i you know before the pandemic was on a plane twice a month conferences meetings and i readily acknowledge given my profile white cisgender male of privilege very easy for me to belong just comes naturally now i've been working consciously to consider how i show up and how i help others show up but i don't know that i've i've thought about the word belonging can can you talk about the evolution of that word in this practice? It, it's really hitting me. And I'd, I'd love to just stay on that word for a little while. When you say talk about the evolution, you, you quickly make me have to pick up my phone and like, A, now let me look at the definition of evolution. B, am I smart enough? Do, <laughs> you know, C, am I deep enough in this, in this, in this work to, to even be able to speak to that? And so well, I don't want to, you let's know, come at it, let's come at it this way then. Um, okay. How do you approach uh, scenarios where you see a sense of belonging is absent or is not present in the way that it should be? How do you approach that idea of belonging in your work? So let me use a, a real life example or, or real more of a real time example, if you will. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a number of reports that are circulating now that say that uh, harassment is actually up in a Zoom environment, that women are experiencing more aggression more bias, more harass harassment in Zoom meetings. And, and I find that hard to believe, but I'm willing to, to live and sit with the reporting, the data that's out there. And so one of the things that I would, would stress is that if, if I'm on a Zoom meeting and I know that, you know, Jim or Karen or Carol or Charles or uh, David, whatever, if I, if I know that this person's personality is a bit more bubbly, they're a bit more contributory, 
in the past, but for whatever reason, now they're, they're acting, seeming to be more reserved, then I'm going to be purposeful about my including them in the com comments, including them in the conversation, because I need to make sure that they are okay. And, and, and that's if I feel like I can do that. I'm not going to badger them to participate, but if I feel like they're distant, their camera has always you know, historically been off in our Zoom meetings as of late, I I'm going to do things that I feel like will bring them into the conversation. That that's number one. But number two, offline, I'm going to make sure that I check in with them to make sure that I find out or at least show that I'm concerned about their emotional well-being, perhaps their physical well-being, their mental well-being, uh, because people are going through quite a bit in this pandemic. And so I don't know what the situation may be as to why they are less contributory during a Zoom meeting than they may have been when we were in the office. And so I just need to make sure. What we've learned over the last 14, 15 months is that we necessarily didn't know the people that we sat next to all that well. And so I think that it's one of these things where we need to be present in terms of how folks are navigating the Zoom, this webinar, this virtual, this agile, distributed workforce posture, and then what we are doing to show them that we recognize something is a bit off. We just want to make sure you're okay. And, and as long as you say you're okay, I have to trust you and take you for your word. So that's how you show up. You're, you're versed in this work. You're fluent in it. You come up by it. You're literally the king of this work, or one of the kings. I, don't, I give honor to all the folks that are really contributing meaningfully to this work. Indeed. Now, that being said, you're working with folks who are not fluent in this space, who are struggling to develop DEIB in an appropriate form. You just, you've got me thinking about, like, like I said, how you show up personally. And you gave me some examples, both physical examples in the cafeteria and on Zoom. So there seems like there's a power dynamic. And I, I noted in one of your very compelling videos, and I'll share links to that when we post this episode, you talk about how you challenge people to explore their relationship with power. Because I have this sense that belonging often has to do with how power is represented in a certain situation, in a certain organization. And I'd love for you to talk about the power dynamic that you're, I think, trying to change in many organizations. Because I have seen the negative impact, the radioactive impact of power, and how it can be really diminishing a sense of belonging. You must come up against that daily, <laughs> that yeah. power dynamic. It shows up in so many ways. You know, some of the familiar phrases are chasing diversity and inclusion are too arduous, said by board members from one of the FANG top, you know, top tech companies, if you will. Another one that is said often is chasing diversity and inclusion is lowering of the bar. One of the things that came out of Deloitte in August of 2017 they got rid of their ERGs, employee resource groups, referred to sometimes as business resource groups, uh, affinity resource groups, but the acronym is ERG. That stands for, again, employee resource groups. August of 2017, Deloitte did away with their ERGs because white men felt like they weren't invited. 
So here we are in this ERG. It could be around people with disabilities. It could be centered around people that identify as LGBTQ. Uh, it could be single mothers. Could have been an ERG around single mothers and issues that concern them, how they navigate, assimilate, move throughout the workplace. Well, white men felt like they weren't invited to those exampled groups, and there are certainly others. And so when I talk about challenging that relationship with power is number one, not allowing that fragility, not allowing that fragility to be centered uh, because we center that in far too many of these conversations. White women are centered in these conversations. Well, I'm not racist or I didn't do that or I didn't say that or well, what about me type scenarios? It tends to be, you know, when we are inside of these trainings that take place inside of organizations, when we attempt to have these very robust and critical conversations, you, you'll see a white woman begin to cry and all of a sudden the, 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 the conversation moves from the person that's aggrieved, that's challenged, underrepresented, often overlooked, under-resourced to the tears. I've seen that exact scenario play out. Absolutely. When that happened. And it was absolutely stunning absolutely. to watch the spotlight just quickly shift. Yeah, it just shifts. And when I say that and show that as an example, it's not to minimize the emotional connection that the white woman has, whether it be genuine or, or any other reason, whether it be for attention. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not minimizing, in quotes, I'm not minimizing that. What I'm saying is that in our pursuit of shifting the narrative around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, we have to challenge the power dynamic. We have to break the cycle of always reverting to patriarchy or centering whiteness in our solution. Sometimes you have to make decisions. Oftentimes you will make decisions that are counter to the way that we've done them in the past. And that is absolutely okay. You will make decisions. I, I'll give you a case in point. When, when we, when we uh, opened up this uh, conversation, I said to you that I show up differently in the DNI space. So I'm a practitioner. So I come to this work largely through my recruiting days, building high-performing teams for a number of organizations. I understand how to recruit. I understand how to put Boolean search strings together. I understand how to curate stories that are compelling that will get people to respond via email and on phone and whatnot. And so today, as organizations are working more aggressively to build inclusive and diversely represented teams, you will have recruiters and sourcers and hiring managers that will say, well, if we look at a person's profile picture on LinkedIn, that's discriminatory or reverse discrimination. And so what I say to them in those instances, well, did you say that when you were looking at LinkedIn profiles and there were white men that you were hiring and not looking at black and brown people or others? Then why are you asking that question or taking that position now that I'm challenging you to intentionally look for black and brown people, to intentionally look for First Nation, Indigenous, Native American individuals? Why, why are you taking that posture of its reverse discrimination? So we have to challenge the power dynamic if we are going to shift the narrative. And that doesn't mean 
that that intentionality is exclusionary. It means exactly what I said. It's intentional. We have a lack of representation of certain audiences, certain communities, certain bodies of people. So because those individuals are not represented, we're intentionally going to look for them. I'm not going to wait for the referrals to come from you know, the typical referral sources. I'm not going to wait for the candidate to come through the typical job posting and online mediums and platforms. I'm going to intentionally go out and find who's not represented. And I'm going to challenge your position that that is reverse discrimination. How many times have you brought into an organization, invited in because of your work, because of your, your background, your ability to challenge? How many times are you invited in only to find that they didn't actually want to be challenged? Oh, more than I can remember. Ooh. From a consulting standpoint, from a speaking standpoint, I'll give you a beautiful example. This was 2018, 19, 2018. Risk mitigation, a risk mitigation like insurance organization up in New York wanted me to speak to their sales professionals across the country. They have an annual meeting down in Orlando. They wanted to fly me down, put me up in this very nice hotel. They wanted me to talk to their salespeople in part around diversity and inclusion, in part inspiration and motivation, you know, and maybe a little bit of sales strategy because before I came to recruiting, I built a highly successful sales team for MCI Communications, one of the top sales teams in the entire country. So I know a little bit about sales, motivation, all of that stuff. So I said, awesome, I love it. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to come down. By the way, tell me what the agenda looks like. So they said on one day, you'll have an opportunity to talk to the sales folks and then you can go out and relax by the pool. The day before the conference is when the executive leaders meet and we do all of this other stuff, boom, 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 two day conference. I said, well, I wanna talk on the first day. Like you don't even have to pay me anything extra. I want to talk to the executives on day one in the private meeting and then talk to the sales team on day two in the general session. Well, why do you want to do that? Well, the power and the resources come from the executive team. So it makes little sense for me to cajole and to inspire salespeople to be more pursuant of DNI initiatives and efforts and whatnot when they may not have the buy-in, the support from leadership. So I want to talk to leadership. So it helps them model or be prepared to model what I'm going to share with the sales team. They said, Torn, we're not ready for that. Well, why not? No, 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 we're not ready for that. Do you know to this day right now, Jim, this is no exaggeration. That was 2018, right now in 2021, about the only thing that they are doing as it relates to diversity and inclusion. I shouldn't say only thing. One of the things that they do and feel like they've made progress is to purchase Cuban food for their offices down in Miami. Wow. And that's not an exaggeration. They didn't want the honest, unfiltered, constructive, challenging conversation with leadership. They wanted to remain and want to remain in the posture that they've been in for the last close to 100 years. Yeah. Well, you've, you've talked about that in some of your work too, which is 
this notion of the work can be transformative or it can be performative, just a performance theater like approach to to DNI. And Absolutely. Getting Cuban food to your office in Miami is exactly that. It's performative. It's just theater. It's just it's window dressing on substantive issues. So what do you look for or or I'm trying to picture the kind of company that hasn't achieved its DNI goals, but really wants to. What's the signal to you that a company leadership is actually really going to do the transformative work, not the performative? A good signal for me is that executive leadership is involved in the decision making around bringing me in as a consultant. They may not sit in on all of the pre-planning or pre exploratory type conversations. But at some point before making that decision, I've had an opportunity to speak with executives, senior leaders in an organization. Now, that's a little more challenging when you work with some of the larger organizations that I've worked with. And admittedly, I've been in some of those engagements and unfortunately have never had a chance to speak with the CEO. Some of them are represented on my LinkedIn profile, but I do know that those organizations were genuinely authentically serious and committed to doing the work. They made investments. We've worked and continue to work in some of those instances over a three-year period. But for me at this particular point now in 2021, as we move into 2022, I'm more than a decade in on the DNI work. I am almost reticent to have conversations and engage in mandates with the organizations where I have not spoken with C-suite leaders. So for me, it's access to that C-suite, which is extremely important. Um, because again, I need to know that we are going to have uh, the reallocation of resources, both headcount and dollars. I need to know that that is going to be something that you, you support. Another sign for me that an organization is committed is that leadership has made a or taking a demonstrative position around the, the criticality of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. That doesn't have to be a public-facing position because I know that sometimes that can be uh, a bit tricky. It can change the, the waters, make the waters a little more choppy than necessary. Although I do really, really believe in transparency. I'm simply saying your executive team needs to say to everyone internally at minimum, this is how important DNI is to our organization. And then I think the third thing that I'm going to be looking for, always looking for, is that you just simply hold people accountable. And when I say holding people accountable, a lot of organizations, in, in most instances, they're holding senior leadership accountable. They're holding executives accountable. They're connecting compensation to DNI metrics at those two levels. When I say holding people accountable, I'm speaking about the entire organization. The biggest wins for me last year, Jim, were not because the business grew, not because I spoke more. It wasn't those, those things. Those are selfish. The biggest wins for me were three organizations said, we are going to have a DNI component added to every employee's performance evaluation. Let me tell you what that looks like. It's different in all of them. But what it comes down to is that there is some question in theory, Jim, what did you do to contribute to our mission of more inclusion and representation? It's almost a self-reporting question, but Jim has to answer that. And Jim is honest and 
share what he contributed or I didn't really do anything. And I'm not saying that Jim is going to be penalized, but what I am saying is that the mere asking of the question repositions Jim's thinking around how important this is. And if I didn't do anything in 2020, I may want to do something different in 2021. Or you might continue to say, well, I'm not, I don't care about that. So I'm not doing anything. What it tells me is that I have more people in the organization helping to push the narrative, the progress forward than not. And so I loved that the three organizations said, we are going to add this component to the performance evaluations of everyone. I love that on so many respects, because if you craft that question and serve it up properly, it automatically invites individual reflection on what have I done to contribute. Even going back, you, you have a moment of reflection, I'm sure, about why are we even doing this? That's its own point of conversation, for sure. Sure. But I just love that you, you frame this in such a way that it, it invites everyone to reflect on it and think about their contribution. And I think that's important in some ways. I'm just reacting to it in real time because it's so often, and I've learned this from actually past guests on this podcast, so much of the burden falls on our black and brown, our indigenous colleagues to demonstrate patterns of aggression against them, to keep coming back to white leadership and saying, here, you need to see this because they don't hear it the first time. They don't see it the second time. And the burden seems to be on our black and brown colleagues to show up and prove it. And it just feels just so backwards. Now, if you invite everyone to think about these issues, you're inviting everyone to look for patterns that they contribute to. There's something really powerful in that. I'm really thinking about that for my own small team. And also just as a, perhaps a signal for when I work with other companies, I am not as I've readily admitted, a DEIB or a DNI expert. Obviously, I'm trying to work real hard to improve my language, but I just love that you're giving me signals that at least I can look for to say, is this company committed to doing the right thing? Ah, powerful stuff. Yeah, powerful. But can I jump in for a moment? Yeah, you please. Know, that's the second time that you've said that. And I want to just make sure that I call that out. I don't need Jim to be an expert or virtuoso at DEIB. What I need is for Jim to be more human. Mm. And so people say to me oftentimes, well, Torrin, you're a bit Pollyannish around your approach towards DNI. Because I have this phrase, people know me for this phrase, the ROI of DNI is greater humanity. And so what I share with individuals is that I don't want you, I, I'm not trying to be an academician. I'm not trying to be a politician. I'm not trying to be someone in the legal community. I don't want to be pastoral. I want to be of service in this particular space. And so I've committed myself to this particular journey. I just want Jim to be more human and that you have shown that you are willing and wanting to be more human. And I think all of us can be more human. I say, the core principles for me around this are empathy, proximity, and transparency. And so when you wrap those three words around your core, your heart, your mental, you wrap them around your speech, then you show up differently when you are thinking through an empathetic tongue, when you are acting through a more proximate tongue, 
or, or presence, if you will, a more transparent truth. You have empathy, proximity, and transparency. It is a more, much more powerful individual and it centers, for me, humanity. And I think if we do more of that, then we'll have less work to do as it relates to, is this the right, right DNI formula? Ha have we uh, looked at this data enough, this metric enough? Have we checked a number of boxes? Do we have the right targets? If I just show up more human, more empathetic, more close to the scenario, more transparent about my knowledge, whatever, I know that I'm making progress. And those are the three things that I see in you and in the building of this podcast. Well, I appreciate that. And you're right. I, I couldn't have phrased it that way until you gave me the language. I'm absolutely working on empathy, proximity, and transparency. And you're also right, and I appreciate the push, that it is not my goal to become a DNI expert, but I am certainly trying to work towards a better understanding of those issues, that language to influence how I show up. I'm constantly working on that. But let me shift a little bit, which is in some ways, let me say it this way. You see me working at this. You see me being a student of this work and trying to talk to experts like yourself. So you're readily invited to push and you've done it here in this conversation. And I'm going to keep reflecting on it, keep having these conversations. How do you approach the folks who just don't give a just say, this just doesn't matter. I don't care. You do what you want, but I'm not a racist and I, I don't see race. I don't see color. They throw language at you that, that reveals they're at the very heart of what is causing so much trouble. How do you just work against that? You may not have a, a simple formula, but I'd just be curious to maybe hear some of your mindset you're thinking about when you, I mean, you have to run into it, whether it's in your work or in walking down the street. Yeah, absolutely. You kind of put a couple of different people inside of that barrel. You know, the folks that say, I don't see race don't necessarily fit in the category of I don't give a shit. When I hear I don't give a shit, then I, I see them as a totally different sect of individuals. And so the way that I approach that particular group, because the I don't see color individuals or I'm not racist individuals, they may be a little bit different. That's a different conversation. Ooh. They may be at a different place in the journey. But the person who has declared that this work is not important, this work is beneath them, that they are only about meritocracy, pull yourselves up by your bootstrap, mm. everything is fair. You know, this is an assault on men, white men. It, you, well, I had this conversation on Clubhouse last Friday, you know, a couple of Fridays ago around patriarchy and masculinity, if you will. So for, for individuals who just don't care, Jim, I really have to use a barometer of how much am I going to try to pour into bringing them on the journey? Is it worth it? The emotional scars, the heavy lift, the amount of time it's going to perhaps take to convince them. I need to kind of feel that in an individual and I don't have a formula for that. It really is about, you know, being able to observe their contribution to the conversation, their submission to the work, their participation. It's really a moving target, if I'm honest. And so I just try to think back to scenarios where I've been. You know, there have certainly been some folks that I just could not connect with. Just It just didn't work. They were, they were at various levels inside of an organization, and their participation contribution were zero or, or minimal. 
uh, what I can tell you is that I just don't spend a lot of time on them. I like to think that eventually they'll come along, but I'm not going to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to convince, trying to beg, trying to cajole them to participate when there are so many more that are saying, we want more, we're chasing better. Mm -hmm. and, and what I believe happens is that depending on the level of influence and power and tenure that those no care individuals have will depend on how long they stay inside of a full-throated, full-bodied organization that is moving in a particular direction that sometimes they will exit themselves out of the equation, that they will remove themselves from the equation, that they will be so uncomfortable because there's so many people in the or organization saying, this is what's important. This is what we're doing. We're starting this, we're chasing that, that they feel like, you know what? Let's go back to that B. I don't belong. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. I was just thinking, oh, what a sweet shift that would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Where the folks who did not feel a sense of belonging absolutely. shift and the folks who felt entitled and uh, in power feel less a sense of belonging. Oh, that absolutely. would be a lovely shift, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Wouldn't that and, be and, and to me, I sanction that type of discomfort. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. I, don't I sanction it. Comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. I sanction it all day long, every day. You know, I got a saying, uh, you know, it's not a new saying, but I, I want to see racist organizations go out of business, period. Like full stop, I, I absolutely want to see organizations where they coddle racist, they operate with racist tendencies, they built racism in their structure, in their hiring, in their promotion, in their support. They are organizations that, that are largely leaning towards we don't care. I want to see those types of companies go out of business. And I don't care if they are stalwarts in their industry. I don't care if they've been around for 20, 30, 50, 100 years. I don't care if they are trillion dollar unicorns. I don't care about any of that. I want to see them absolutely be cut out of the economic equation and out of business. That's what I want to see. I want to see people that don't care pushed out of organizations and all go work. And I want to see all of them in an organization and then they are, are cut off from uh, that's just what i want to see i don't care about them yep i'm right there with you I, I don't think i would have had the power to phrase that on my own until talking to you but as you say it i i have no bone to pick with that i really don't you know i think maybe two hours ago i might have been thinking or feeling some of that but also i, I might have said well why wouldn't i want to work to change them and make the shift but you know what? Screw it. You're right. They have no right to be part of the economic infrastructure if they have no investment in seeing that economic infrastructure really lean in on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. They don't belong in their own right. So yeah, I'm right there with you. And I, and I now have the language and the comfort to say, if you're a racist organization, you should be out of business. And I feel like maybe... We're getting there. I want to acknowledge, you know, we're recording this on June 18th. So tomorrow's kind of a big deal for us, for the country, I should say, with the, the federal government just having passed legislation acknowledging Juneteenth as a federal holiday. I'm curious to what extent you think that recognition 
will help this work or will it be cause more agita? What, what, what are you feeling about that from your position as an expert in this work? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm a bit ambivalent. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not as excited about the federal government given Juneteenth the status of being a federal holiday. You know, my happiness is throttled because that's the same body of people that have not passed the George Floyd anti-policing bill. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. the same body that has voted down the anti-lynching bill more than 200 times. That's the same body that is reticent around paying, you know, workers, frontline workers, more money, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. It's the same body that still has um, acknowledged or and, and, and in many ways condone children being separated from their parents at the border. That's the same body that decided that we needed to pass a bill around Asian hate earlier in the year. Let me put a pin in that. And the reason why I put a pin in that is because two references ago, I said they voted down the anti-lynching bill more than 200 times. And as a result of the former administration calling the COVID virus or pandemic, the China virus, people started to aggrieve Asian individuals more late 2020, early 2021. Hear me clearly, late 2020, early 2021, people began to aggrieve those of Asian ethnicity more. And as a result of a few months of aggrievement, that body said that we were going to pass an anti-Asian hate bill. Well, we already have hate laws on the books, but they felt it important enough that we needed to go one step further for the Asian community. Yet when the black community says we want to pass an anti-lynching bill, because let us be clear, people are still being lynched. They say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to pay any attention. We're going to vote that down more than 200 times. So I'm not all that excited about a Juneteenth and these symbolic Ooh. gestures of we care until you do something substantive. I'm not an either or individual. I want both. I want and. Yeah, you want you want the performance <laughs> and you want the substance. Absolutely. And, and the Juneteenth, on the one hand, is I suppose I could I could see this as a nice acknowledgement, but it's not one of substance. It it really does feel performative. And you're right about the legislation. You're right to to push on that thinking, which is a, a muted response to that seems most appropriate. I'm just again thinking out loud. My initial reaction, not having a a personal familial stake in Juneteenth, other than uh, other than recognizing some of the need for it, I say, okay, that's neat. I did not take the time to think about the lack of progress on anti-lynching laws, the it, lack it, of progress on legislation surrounding the impact of George Floyd. Yeah. Um, and let me say this, you know, let me say this, Jim, it, the, I don't raise that example because I feel like the Asian hate bill should not have been passed. Oh, for sure. I get that. It absolutely yeah. should have been passed. It's just that when I think about this, this body of politicians, I, I, I absolutely want to go back to what I said before, hold them accountable. And sometimes sure. it's hard to hold them accountable from 
our vantage point from the individual vantage point, but collectively, that would be the sentiment of many black and brown people or black people, let me be very clear. That would be the sentiment of many black people as it relates to Juneteenth. And that really resonates with me. You know, I'm thinking about, and I've, I've read recently about the GI Bill, which is touted as having been transformative for that generation coming back from World War II. We were never taught that more than a million black and veterans of color were denied access to the GI Bill. So, and it's fact, it was, it was in principle available to, to all returning veterans, but in practice, the way it was metered out was at a state level and they were very specific and very proactive in carving out access to college funds and housing funds so that black veterans could not have access to that. And I just think about the generational gaps that that created around housing, around you know access to suburban sprawl, which then led to schools, which led to education access. I mean, it's pretty profound and we were never ever taught anything about that. And so it's interesting that here we have Juneteenth got passed pretty quickly. It's on the president's desk. But if you look at the state level, what are they doing? They're legislating the hell out of conversations and education related to race. They are actively and proactively threatening teachers if they so choose to talk about things like racism in our institutions, things like critical race theory. It's a fascinating and I would say troubling disconnect between the notion of Juneteenth and the actual work that's being done by our governing bodies. You know, I'm outraged by it because I work in the education space. I'm associated with some groups that are working really hard to affect anti-racism education in schools at a leadership level and in the classroom. And yet these states are very consistently printing out legislation that says, nope, you can't talk about race. Yeah, they absolutely are. And one book that I uh, would share as a point of reference for the listeners is The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. R-O-T-H-S-T-E-I-N, Richard Rothstein, The Color of Law. And I share that because you make the reference to the GI Bill, which is a federal mandate. It's a federal piece of action, if you will. And inside of the book, Richard Rothstein, the author, he comprehensively shows how the federal government has supported systemic racism in institution and in industry, the federal government. So I think it's extremely important for people to understand. That's why I have a different relationship with that phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I have a totally different relationship with that because it's not always the individual who is not trying. I think a lot of what we need in the, the DNI world in this pursuit is a mix of public policy and personal responsibility. So it's not always either or. Again, I'm an and both person. And so I think that's a very, very good read for your audience, The Color of Law. Well, I'm, I'm sure it's going to go out and take a look. That, that pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing is really interesting. I never had to do it. I always worked hard, for sure. I've achieved a modicum of success. But I'm also really clear that I did not need to pull... And I talked about this in my first episode. Someone asked me about why do I want to have these conversations? And one of the things I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, thinking about this in advance, but I graduated with no debt from college. I mean, can you imagine 
I mean, I didn't realize at the time just how liberating that was, how much freedom I had as a result to do the things that I wanted to do. So the pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing is, is kind of fascinating. And I'm wandering a bit, but it, an image just flashed into my mind of when I was doing some volunteer work in San Antonio, Texas. And I was at a church. This is right after college. Uh, the director of programs brought me in and said, hey, would you take care of these guys? Get them a shower. Let's get them some food. And it was two guys who had just ridden for about 12 to 14 hours on the underside of a cargo train from Mexico. They strapped themselves to the underside of a train from Mexico to San Antonio, Texas, where they're able to roll out middle of the night and found themselves to this church. How hard were their lives that they had to strap themselves to the bottom of a train and ride all the way to freedom? Now, talk about pulling yourself up in some respects. Talk about the work ethic, the motivation, so many things. And, and by the way, this isn't purely inspirational. I imagine they were fleeing some set of circumstances that I, I shudder to imagine. And so there's fear and desperation. There's also effort and passion and a desire to, to live. I don't know. I'm just struck by that, that phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I don't know. I'm struggling with, with how I feel about all that right now, as you can see. Yeah, no. And I mean, again, I think that there certainly is some application. Every individual, there should, there's some application of that phrase to your life. Like, it's not going to come to you that you do have to work for it. My father, you know, as we were growing up, my mother and father, I was born in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale to be exact. And I often tell people that I was born at a time when my parents couldn't swim in parts of the Atlantic Ocean parts of the Atlantic Ocean, forget a community pool, an ocean. They couldn't swim there. So it's in my lifetime that much of the progress that we've experienced has happened. So that pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it was applicable in the 1800s for white men, I would assume, in the 1920s for white women and men, I would assume, Irish men, women, I would assume, in the 60s, 30s, 40s, for, I mean, it, 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 it applies. But what I think is that I think too many white people have a fond, how do, how do I phrase this? I feel like they have this uh, euphoric relationship with that phrase that if we just simply utter it, if we just simply work hard, that everything is going to be all right. And, and sometimes to their detriment, like they would have that phrase around as you, have heard poor white trash that they just aren't working hard people in west virginia and appalachian mountains or rural parts of kentucky some of the poorest counties in the country that they're just not working hard so i, I think that white people more often than not have a euphoric relationship with that phrase of pull yourselves up by your bootstrap and just simply think that because of where they are in life that everything that they have was a result of their working hard. And that's just not the case. In December of 2018, Boston Globe put out an incredible seven-part series. The first installation of that Boston Globe series, the headline said, is Boston racist? So as I began to read that, the thing that jumps out at me even today is that it said the average Black family in Boston had a net worth of $8 and like 37 cents. Yeah. 
For those of you listening at home, my eyes just went about twice their size. Exactly. Shocking. Yeah, I saw that. So for me, it's just a different relationship with that phrase because I don't categorize every individual who is stuck in a rung of poverty that is in a job that is frontline, if you will, that is something where there is this constant negotiation between you know, being able to enjoy life and uh, minimum wage. I, I don't look at people with a broad brush and simply say that they're not working hard because I believe a good, 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 good number of them are working hard and that navigating and growing through some of the social systems that are in place is far more challenging than a lot of people are willing to admit. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and that phrase, you know, Jim pulled himself up by his high-performance, shock-absorbing, waterproof Gore-Tex bootstraps when he walked a lovely, wandering gravel path. Other folks were handed a piece of leather and no tools and said, here you go, pull yourself up by. They're different bootstraps. They're different scenarios, different context, different access. And, and we have to recognize the power of that language. While that phrase can be used easily, it should not be applied so casually. That's, that's just good food for thought. It's the kind of thing I want to keep thinking about. Listen, you've provided so many insights and things to think about for me and hopefully for my listeners. Uh, I want to invite you, if you have one, to ask me a question. And again, the, the idea here is, as you've seen, when it's called Jim Questions Everything, it's questioning how I come to view the world. But now I invite you, if you have one, to ask me a question. Anything's on the table. Yep, absolutely. And I do. And again, thank you for, you know, the conversation. It's a different one for me. I love how you took it to different places while we still played inside of the DEIB space. It made room for some different contexts. And I appreciated that. My question for you is your biggest misconception about race. Question is the, my biggest misconception about race. Boy, these questions, they're tough, aren't they? So as I've done with others, I'm just going to answer as uh, with the first thing that comes to mind. And here's the honest truth. I feel like a deer in headlights. I don't know how to answer that one. My biggest misconception about race. My, um, hmm. Let me give it to you yeah. a different way. Well, no. Okay. Give it to me a different way, but I, I want so, the so, audience to hear my fine. struggle. You, you, you can stay where you were. I, yeah. I just want to add give it to where me. it comes from. So in my days of recruiting, one of the things that I would ask my candidates is the biggest misconception your manager, your leader had about you. Mm. And some of them would say, well, that you, that they were a mismanagement of time or that they lacked administrative skills or that they weren't as motivated as they really were. You know, they just didn't see that in them, that they may have been too trustworthy, whatever the case may be, that they were more knowledgeable about the subject matter that they were selling, that they were performing in than they really were. So it comes from, you know, you being on this pursuit of being a better human, wanting to have these incredible conversations. I'm hoping that in such you've you've seen something that has, wow, I, I saw race as this. It ain't really that. So your biggest misconception about race. Okay. So here's why I appreciate that push uh, and, and the framing of it. You also allowed me to process the question a little bit, and I want to get a little meta with you on it because you asked about race and my mind went to racism. So the reason I was struggling is 
do I talk about perception of race or racism? And I, and I would have to answer them somewhat differently. But uh, let me see if I can, first off, does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> Why I'm struggling with that a little yeah, bit? Absolutely. I want to answer it honestly. Yeah. I want to make sure I answer it with some precision. Yeah. So here's the, here's the thing that's coming to mind for me, which is that I worry that, uh, and I'm not sure I'm yet answering your question, but I'm going to talk my way there and I'm going to leave this unedited because I want folks to hear the struggle in this. I, I worry that for all the work I'm doing, I'm, I just, I'm still carrying biases and baggage that I will I maybe never let go of. And that scares me. I mean, I grew up in a rural community in the 80s and we were allowed, we were, it was encouraged by coaches and community members to be racist, to be uh, misogynistic, to denigrate people who didn't look like us. I'm, I, I, I will tell you, Torin, that some of the things I worry about, even in this very conscious pursuit and this effort to not be performative in my work, that it's still latent, that someday when I'm old, that shit's just going to come out and, I, and I'll have no control over it. Despite my best efforts, I'm still going to mess it up. So that's my worry in the, in the lens of racism. Like we were just conditioned. We had made jokes about it. We excused it as locker room talk. And then, you know, we had this conversation on a prior episode with a transgender advocate where we talked about the locker room banter that was not just allowed, it was encouraged. And I worry that in those very formative years, even as I'm older and working on this stuff, it's still going to find its way there, that piece. Does that make sense? That's my first, that's part A of my answer. I'm curious how that lands with you. Yeah, that's transparent. It's interesting, you know, and my hope is that in that instance, should it, should it arise, that you are able to recognize it then as you are right now. So I, it makes sense. I can appreciate it. You went in a direction that I may not have expected you to go. So that's, that's the, the worry I have as it relates to, to racism. I, I think I'm maybe overstating it in some ways, but then again, I don't want to let myself off the hook. I'm really working hard to be outnumbered in the room as many times as possible in a given year. It's so easy for me to be in a room of other white men. It's just, it's so easy. It's stupid. So how do I find myself in a room where I'm outnumbered, where I'm working on a different kind of belonging? But the race thing, that's interesting. When you use that word misconception about race, so much for me goes into that. Uh, I, I might've said, you know, if, if you had asked me the, a version of me that lived 60 years ago, my, my answers would have been biological. They would have been incorrect, but they would have been the, the misperception about the biology of race and the differences. Hmm. 2021, now I think of race uh, much more in the, in the context of culture and language. And, uh, and I, guess I, I guess I have to keep thinking about my perceptions of race and what that means. I don't have a great answer. Yeah, well, so, but, but a great answer is not always required. Reflection is important as well. And I think it's one of those things where you, you get to think about that, you know, differently. You get, you get to have a bit of a relationship with that question. You get to wrestle with that question a bit. I, I, I wanted to share a name with you 
uh, when you talk about being in rooms that are different from yours and because of your work in the educational space. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Aloe View, Jess Gardner and Aloe yes, View? Very much. Awesome. I wanted to make sure that I did my Baltimorean. Uh, <laughs> Shout out to your neighbors in Baltimore. Yes. She is phenomenal. I love the work that she is doing and has been doing with Aloe View. And I think it it meshes extremely well with the work that you are attempting to do. Well, what's nice about their work and all respect to, to Jess and her team, she did probably doesn't even know this podcast exists, but now she will. They're, they're working in a different form of systemic change around finance in education and how schools are funded. And they're equipping district leaders with the tools, with the data to say, hey, funding configurations have to change so that schools are more equitably funded. So yeah, it's, it's nice that you acknowledge Jess and the work that her team's doing. I'd be curious to have her on this conversation, the three of us, and see how she grapples with some of these things. But yeah, and there are some good organizations, and I'll make sure to point them out, doing anti-racism work. In fact, one of them is called CT3, C, letter T, the number three. And uh, they've been working for more than a decade on cultural competence, culturally relevant instruction. And now they're leaning in specifically on anti-racism work in education. It's one of the few African-American CEOs out there in the education industry. So my hat's off to them as well. And my hat's off to you for pushing me, for allowing me to struggle with you right in front of you openly and transparently and giving me things that in the best possible way will keep me up at night, but that will also keep me really thinking, reflecting and challenging my own perception. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you. No, I absolutely appreciate you. Again, just keep pushing. You know, this is a journey for all of us. And, you know, life is that journey and I'm enjoying it. I think diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are beautiful. I think they are aspirational, but absolutely beautiful and worth every single thing that we give to them, whether it be our thought, our effort, our resources. I firmly, firmly, firmly believe that we are better humans as a result of inclusion and representation. And so that's the hill that I'm dying on. And it's a, it's a fight worth fighting. More power to you for the work you do and for the kings and the queens that you serve. Thank you so much. Most welcome. <laughs>